Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for those children. We thank you for the blessing of each one of them. Um, and you said when you were on earth um, that only the people that come to you as little children um, can receive your kingdom. So we pray for that kind of heart this morning, um, that we would come, with, uh, come to you with humility, um, with excitement to see what you're going to do, with trust in you, um, with hunger for the provision that you want to give us. Um, please make our hearts like children. And please feed us with your word this morning. We ask it in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, so this Advent, we're thinking about the theme of open your hands. So in other words, use this season of Advent to lay aside whatever would distract you or get in the way of you really receiving Jesus. Do you want to cue up our little slide for that? Yeah, thanks, Eli. All right, so today the prophets are going to um, bring us a word about idolatry. Idolatry. So it's Prophets Week um, on our Advent candle stand, as Sarah said. Um, and there are two subjects that the prophets like to discuss more than anything else. Well, I don't know whether they like to, but they do. Um, so as we read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the rest of the prophets, we hear them talking a whole lot about idolatry and injustice. Two subjects they come back to over and over again. And I wonder if that's because these two particular things, idolatry and injustice, break the two most important commandments in the law of Moses, right? So Jesus said the two greatest commands are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two central commands of the law. Jesus said that all the rest of the law hangs on those two commands. And um, if you break the first command, then you're committing idolatry, uh, you're worshipping other things uh, instead of God. If you break the second command and don't love your neighbour, that always leads to injustice. Um, so the law has bo both a vertical and a horizontal priority of love. Um, and uh, the prophets show how idolatry and injustice break those two priorities. Um, and we also see that the two things always go together. Both the holy and the unholy pairs always go hand in hand. So wherever you find love for God, you also always find love for neighbor. It's never one without the other. And conversely, wherever you find idolatry, you also always find injustice. Those two always go together too. And we also see that the two pairs exclude each other. It's a choice of one or the other. Um, so the prophet, prophet Jonah said this very clearly. He said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So in other words, you lose God if you choose idols. So this is a really important warning that God gave us through his prophets. Uh, we need to understand why idolatry is such a big problem, why we ourselves might be tempted to it, and how we can escape from it. Because we know that idolatry is still a real problem. If we walk around Tallahassee today, uh, we don't see any pagan temples. We don't see people getting blocks of wood and carving them into statues and bowing down to them. Thankfully, all, all that's done. But at the same time, we know that the problem of idolatry has not gone away, has it? It just looks very different now. And because it looks different, it's harder for us to recognize. Um, but what we see is that idolatry follows the same patterns now as it always has. And that's how we recognize it. Um, so we're going to look at those patterns from Isaiah chapter 44. So we can turn there now. 
page 604 of the Church Bibles, Isaiah 44, the passage that Robin read for us so powerfully. Isaiah 44, page 604. So we're going to look at that middle section, that uh, discourse about the making idols, which starts in verse 9. Um, and we're going to see three patterns of idolatry um, from Isaiah's time that are still the same today. So the patterns are, we go to idols for provision, but we get theft. Second, we go to idols for service, but we get slavery. And third, we go to idols for deliverance, but we get destruction. All right, say that again. First, we go to idols for provision, but we get theft. Second, we go to idols for service, but we get slavery. And third, we go to idols for deliverance, but we get destruction. So first, we go to idols for provision, but we get theft. So Isaiah 44 verse 9 says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. So key word in that verse is delight. Notice here that the person who fashions the idol does it because of something he delights in. That's the first pattern to notice. It's only mentioned briefly here, but it's a big deal elsewhere in the prophets. In the beginning, we all go to an idol because of something we think we want. No one in any culture has ever gone to an idol because of love or honor or because it feels like the right thing to do. No, it's always a trade. It's a business transaction. We go because we need something back. Uh, an idol temple is a storehouse that has something I need, and I'm going to take it. And in return, I'll give something I have that feels to me expendable, a piece of my heart and soul. So yeah, I'll bow to that thing. If it will give me food or sex or security or power, I'll make that trade because I feel like I'm getting the better part of the deal. So this is always the motivation behind idolatry across all times and cultures. It's the basic idea behind all the ancient religions. You appease the gods, you pay a tribute, and in, and in doing so, you avoid calamity and you get the things you need. And Israel inherited its own idols from Canaanite religion. So let's talk about that specifically. In Canaanite religion, the chief god was Baal, or Baal. Um, and he ran the whole pantheon. And Baal was the storm god, so the god of rain. And he was also the god of fertility and the god of wine. So he sounds like quite a guy to know. <laughs> Um, naturally, Baal worship, when you went into temples of Baal, the worship involved a whole lot of drinking and sexual immorality. And Baal worship was a fertility cult. It gave you fertility for your animals and for your wives, and most especially for your land. Fertility of the land to grow food. So Baal gave you rain for your crops so that you wouldn't starve. And of course, that was critically important. Those are all very, very important things. The Canaanites believed, they really believed this, that if they went into the temple of Baal and did debauched and shameful and even abominable things there, then Baal would give them rain. It was a trade. And it seemed to be working out okay for the Canaanites. So that's why Israel did the same thing. Israel went to Baal. 
They went to Baal because their land was dry and they needed rain. They went to Baal even though Yahweh had promised them rain if they kept his law. They didn't stop worshipping Yahweh, but they went to Baal too. And they weren't expecting provision. But we see here that they got nothing. So Isaiah 44 verse 10 says, Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? So idols actually give nothing. And we can see this illustrated um, in the long description of the tree, starting in verse 14. So the carpenter, he cuts down a tree, and then he cuts the log in half, all right? And half of it, he burns in the fire, and the other half, he carves into an idol. And in the text, we see it going back and forth between the two halves of the log. First one half, and then the other. First one, and then the other. And there's an invitation to compare the two halves, right? So there's even a play on words in the Hebrew, because in verse 15, the word for fuel, where it says the wood becomes fuel for a man, is the Hebrew word ba'ar. Ba'ar is fuel, something to burn. So half the log is ba'ar, and the other half is ba'al. Something to worship, right? So it's Baal and Baal. Um, and uh, which half does you any good at all? Which half is profitable here? Only the half you burn, right? Because verse 16 says, over that half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. This is God at his most sarcastic. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. The fire is good. It's sensible to burn it, stupid to worship it. <laughs> Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? And then worse than being just unprofitable, the idol actually takes away what we could have had. So verse 20 says, the idolater feeds on ashes. Would Yahweh have given them ashes to eat? Never. Instead of the good food Yahweh would have provided, they traded it in for ashes. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. All right, so we go to idols for provision and we get theft. And we see this pattern at work in the modern world too. The temples of Baal are gone, the statues are gone, but of course, the idolatry to sex and wine and money is none the worse for that. And I'm sure you can think of modern examples of this pattern of going to an idol for provision and being robbed instead. So we've known people, or we've been people, who went to alcohol for help. Not in a godly way of enjoying it with thanksgiving, but in an idolatrous way. And we did it expecting to receive the benefits of delight and comfort. But what we found instead was that it stole away our life. It stole away our income and our time and our friends and our dignity. It took from us. And we've known people or we've been people who went to sex for help. Not in a godly way of a lifelong marriage, but in an idolatrous way of pornography and adultery and prostitution. And why did we do it? Because we expected to find delight and comfort. But what did we get? We got shame, and hiding, and divorce, and alimony, and shared custody, and broken relationships, and Christmases alone. So we went to idols for provision, but we got theft. 
as it was then, is now, and ever shall be. Now, second, we go to idols for service, but instead we get slavery. The very reason people go to idols for help instead of to God is a misguided belief that idols can be manipulated. Right? So uh, I think we know instinctively that we just can't manipulate God. We can't get what we want from him on our own terms because we don't have a bargaining chip. And what idols seem to offer that's better is a power that we can control, that we can manipulate, that we can make to serve our own ends. So look down at Isaiah 44 and verses 12 through 14. These verses are all about the ironsmith and the carpenter. And the ironsmith and the carpenter are the active people in these verses, right? They're cutting, they're measuring, uh, they're in control. These guys choose the tree, they cut it down, they choose how to shape it into the figure of a man in verse 13, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And don't we love about idols that we get to fashion them ourselves in our own image and make them smaller than we are because it feels like we are pulling the strings in the relationship. How could this thing that's smaller than I am control me? A notable characteristic of Canaanite religion was that it was profoundly manipulative. It had procedures. It had formulas. This is what you do to achieve the desired outcome. And it gave its worshippers the illusion of being in control. We know what to do to solve this particular problem. Go to see Baal. Go to the temple prostitute. Sacrifice one of your children. That's what you do. But what's the reality? That the idol makers are the slaves. So verse 12 says that the ironsmith becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So serving his idol turns out to be toilsome labor. And then in verse 20, we see that the idolater is trapped and doesn't even realize it. It says, a deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So we see that the feeling of control that idols give us is a total delusion. We go to them thinking that we can make them our slaves, but inevitably we end up their slaves. So the alcoholic thinks he can put down the bottle when he chooses, but he can't. The junkie thinks he can snuff out the joint when he wants to, but he can't. The glutton thinks he can keep his diet tomorrow, but he won't. And the workaholic thinks he can slow down next year but he can't. The sense of being in control is universal, but it's a delusion. The idol is the real master now, and the master forces his slaves into patterns of life that are exhausting, toilsome, and wearying. The prophets say repeatedly that idolatry wears people out. It wearies its worshippers in a way that God never intended. God said his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Not the case with idols. Idolatry is exhausting. So those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. My wife Sarah has learned to ask when she feels excessively weary in her life, am I chasing something that is not of the Lord? And that's such a good question for all of us to ask. So the first pattern we see is that we go to idols for provision, but we get theft. And then second, we go to idols for service, but we get slavery. And now third, we go to idols for deliverance, but we get destruction. I don't think I need to belabor this point because it's 
clearly here in the text. In verse 17, the idolater falls down to his idol and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. So he's looking for real help, not just a few small gifts here and there. He needs to be rescued. But of course, his idol can't deliver him because it's only a block of wood. And all the while, he's offending the only God who can deliver him by creating and worshipping an abomination. His real God says of him in verse 9, you are nothing. And then in verse 11, promises that he and all his companions will be put to shame. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So there is no deliverance from idols, only destruction. If we want deliverance, then idols are very much the wrong place to go for it. But deliverance is the right thing to want. It's a thing we can have. And actually, God, in his mercy, still wants to deliver us, even if we've been the worst kind of idolater. So in verse 6, listen to what God calls himself, what he says about himself. He says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. And verse 8 says, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So there is only one God, one King, our Lord, our rock. And thankfully, this same God is also our Redeemer. It's the most precious word in this chapter. Isaiah explains more about this in verse 21. God says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. That's the same Hebrew word formed uh, in, verse, uh, in this verse that's in verse 9. So the people fashion idols and God forms us and he does it for a purpose. Isaiah goes on, you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So God calls himself his people's redeemer. And a redeemer is someone who buys a slave out of their slavery. Someone who pays the slave price so that the slave can go free. Verse 20 says that we cannot deliver ourselves. We are stuck in slavery and we can never pay for ourselves. But verse 22 says that we can be redeemed. We can be rescued. And now, thanks to Jesus, we have been. So Jesus is the redeemer in Isaiah chapter 44. In Revelation, Jesus calls himself the first and the last, the very same title that's in verse 6 of Isaiah 44. And Jesus came to free the slaves. He came as the true image of God for the sake of people who were making false images of God. And now we, who can never be delivered by our own creations, can be delivered by our one creator. Jesus is the one who blots out our transgressions like a cloud and our sins like a mist. 
takes all our sin away. That was the very reason that he was born in Bethlehem and the very reason that he died at Calvary. So that people who have fallen into this trap set by idols, which is basically everybody, can now be redeemed from the slavery we chose for ourselves. And we can be made free to worship the only true God. So friends, idolaters can now be rescued, but they must lay down their idols. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So open your hands. Whenever we deal with idols, we see these same three patterns. This is how we recognize that we have a problem with idolatry, because we went to something for provision and we got theft. We went for service and we got slavery. And we went for deliverance and we got destruction. Idols are a trap. So be suspicious of idols. Be suspicious of the things you go to for help. But don't be suspicious of Jesus, who's the only one who can actually help. And I say this because if we're honest, we usually do come to Jesus with a sense of reluctance and trepidation, right? (laughs) Because we're tempted to believe all the worst things about him, like that he'll expect too much of us, or frown on us and judge us, or try to change us into something that we don't want to be. But the reality is that when we actually come to him, we find that it's the precise opposite experience of going to an idol. Because with Jesus, we expect theft, and we get provision. We expect slavery, but we get his service, and we expect destruction, but we get deliverance. So it's so deeply ironic that we're so quick to trust our own idols that will certainly kill us and so slow to trust Jesus who will certainly love us. I don't really understand why this is. I just know it's true and it's true for me too. In our gospel reading today, the rich young man couldn't follow Jesus because he wouldn't lay down his idol of money. It's one of the most moving stories in the Bible, uh, especially the line at the end where it says, He went away sorrowful, for he had great wealth. So the result of his story, his interaction with Jesus, is that he went away sorrowful with his hands full and his heart empty. So are you sorrowful this morning because of what's in your hands? Is it stealing from you? Is it enslaving you? Is it ruining your life? But you're too scared to let it go because it feels like the only thing that helps. And you don't know what your life would be without it. Here's what your life would be without it. Better. Freer. And much happier. Because the thing in your right hand is a lie. It tells you that it's the solution. But really, it's the problem. And you're much, much better off without it. Open your hands and let it go. Thanks to Jesus, we can all get out of jail now. We have the power to let our idols go, and we have a choice now about whether to get free and whether to stay free, because Jesus has given all of us that choice. Paul wrote in Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. It's our choice. So as we take this message home today, I've got one practical application for us to think about. 
And this has been deeply on my own heart this week. We're thinking about what modern idols are. And we're all familiar with the 20th century American idols, money, sex, and power, the big three. Um, But of course, there are lots more. Um, And I thought, how would you get a full list? And I thought, well, basically, uh, if you go into any bookstore and browse the magazine aisle, you get pretty much a catalog of idols, right? Uh, They're all right there. They all have a magazine. Health, fitness, beauty, cars, technology, guns, sports, and so on and so on. Um, They're all things that are good in their place, but are easily and commonly turned into idols. Um, But I think now that there's a new 21st century idol that we also need to think about. In the last two decades, people have started to make an idol out of their own identity. So we're throwing out who God says we are in favor of an image that we make for ourselves. So what Isaiah's craftsmen did is they took a block of wood and they carved out of it the figure of a human to bow down to. And today what we're doing instead is using digital tools to carve ourselves into a new image. We're deciding for ourselves what we are, labeling, branding, conforming to this or that mold, and then demanding that other people honor the self-identity we've made. But really, that's just another form of idolatry. So let me give you some examples. And I'm going to start with myself. Um, I've started to realize how this happens in my own heart very recently. Um, So I've realized that I build an image of myself as a certain kind of man and a certain kind of father and a certain kind of husband and a certain kind of priest. And it's really important to me to think of myself as this kind of person, as kind and available and educated and responsible and gifted for a certain kind of work. But I'm realizing that what I've done is carved this image and then work really hard to maintain it. And because of it, I do some things that I really shouldn't do. And the Lord has been on my case this week to make me realize that the thing I've decided I'm going to be might not be the thing that he made me to be, and that he's the one who gets to decide. If I'm working hard to be something I'm not in order to conform to a self-made identity, and I'm worn out with that effort, then that's idolatry. And sometimes I demand from the world a certain kind of response to the person I've created. And that's idolatry. Here's a second example. I know a mother who's very, very proud of her adult son. She tells her friends all of his accomplishments. She posts pictures of him on Facebook. She shows the world what a good job she's done raising him. But now the real son wants to change his career. And the mother doesn't approve because that wouldn't look good in front of all of her friends. And her self-made image of a certain kind of successful mother would be broken. So she would rather keep her son enslaved in a job, she, the job that he hates than lose her self-image. And that's not love. That's idolatry. Idols have always demanded a child sacrifice. One more example. Today, it's getting more and more common for people to define themselves by their sexuality and to make that the cornerstone of their identity. So we give ourselves a label. We assign ourselves to a certain group. I'm gay. I'm lesbian. I'm bisexual. I identify as a woman. And we're seeing this happen earlier and earlier and earlier in people's lives. 15-year-olds are saying it. 14-year-olds. 13-year-olds. 
Now, it's one thing if it's a process of self-discovery and self-disclosure, but I think what we're seeing now is sexual self-determination and self-creation. We're using sexuality to give us a sense of place and belonging, a certain kind of acceptance around a self-made identity, and that is idolatry. Because God made us, and only God gets to decide who any of us are. We have no identity apart from him, none of us. We're all just a big nothing. And our whole sense of identity needs to come from who God tells us we are. So I want to ask you this morning whether there's an idol in your right hand that you fashioned to resemble a man or a woman, and maybe you think that it's you, but actually the effort of conforming yourself to this image is wearing you out, and you feel like a kind of slave to it. If the Lord is whispering to you that that's true, then in the same breath, he's also giving you the power to say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And to open your hands. Amen.